0: We begin in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, dear brothers and sisters in Christ, on this wonderful Sunday morning. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, I'm really happy that you're here. This is, this is the start of a new sermon series, and the overarching theme is going to be, let's go. We, what, we're, what we want to do is dig into, um, if Jesus died, and if he rose again, then there is impact, there, is, there are repercussions from that fact, um, for us in our Christian living, but also for our world. And so um, in the next seven weeks, that's what we want to look through. We really want to look through uh, some of the ripples or the echoes of Easter. Um, how do those play out in our lives, uh, in your lives, in your actions, in your words, in the things you do, the things you choose not to do? Um, really, in the next seven weeks, that's what we want to look, out, look at. And, and most importantly, how do, we, how do we share that momentous event with the people in our lives that we care about. And it's a worthwhile topic and uh, for us as Christians especially, uh, but even for the world in general. You think about uh, the impact of Jesus' death and his resurrection, um, even from an unbeliever standpoint, from someone that, is, that is, is, is secular or atheist or agnostic, right? There is some wisdom in stepping back for a minute and saying, who was this guy named Jesus of Nazareth? What happened on that Easter Sunday? And if it happened like the Bible says it did, what impact is there for me and for our world? And so Easter, I think, is, is our greatest, not only is it our greatest power for Christian living, but Easter also tends to be our greatest point of contact with those that don't know anything about Christ or, on some level, have even rejected Christ and are hostile to him. Because at the basis level, 2,000 years ago, a man lived, a man died, a man rose again, and the world has never looked the same since. So, today, and in the next seven weeks, we want to talk about that a little bit as Christians. If, if we aren't willing to share Christ with our world? Who will? The answer is they won't. If generations of Christians before us weren't willing to share the resurrection with the people they cared about and they loved, we wouldn't be here in Firestone, Colorado, hearing the gospel text today, right? And so, that's what we want to look at uh, over the next seven weeks. Uh, Our sermons are going to kind of uh, hone in on that, Uh, but then our Bible study, uh, which is going to happen weekly throughout this next seven weeks, is going to give you some really practical tips on um, how do we actually do that, right? So, uh, and and maybe that's something that pastors can be accused of is we say, well, here's the theory, right? Here's what we ought to be doing as Christians, but sometimes practical application of that maybe falls by the wayside. But uh, that Bible study in the next seven weeks is going to give you real practical ways to share your faith with people that desperately need to hear Jesus. So, so for all those reasons, I'm super happy that you're here this morning. Um, but today we're we're kind of we're we're in the did we call it an echo, maybe a ripple, a glow of Easter, right? Uh, for those of you that were with us last week for Easter Sunday, um, we used every chair that we had, right? We used every chair that that we had, and for uh, as As amazing as Easter is and as much a shot in the arm as it is, the real impact of ministry and Christian living takes place afterwards. In fact, that's what our text talks about here today, where Jesus speaks to his disciples and says, here's what I want you to be about. Here's how I want you to do it in your world uh, after I'm gone. So that's what we'll look at. Some of you maybe know this. See if it goes to that next slide. I don't know what I'm doing here. There we go. There you go. Are any of you fans of the beautiful game? Soccer? Okay, see, we've got some. And I'm not going to ask the opposite question. Are there any of you that are not fans of it? I'm just going to assume you're all fans of it. <laughs> Even though some of you were like actively shaking your heads no, I was asking if you liked it, and some of you are like already jumping to like, can't stand it, right? So, okay. Okay, I get it. Um, so some of you do not like soccer or football. Uh, some of you don't enjoy it. You don't don't enjoy that sport. Um, just hang with me because because uh, and don't tune out quite yet. Some of you maybe don't like sports at all. You got to hang with me as well on this. Um, soccer, the the most participated sport our world uh, in our world at this time, uh, um, um, is often called the beautiful game. And sometimes soccer is even referred to as a kind of a, a metaphor for life. They'll talk about the, the flow of soccer and the ins and outs and having to work together as a team and, 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 and kind of all the dynamics that happen, that happen on the pitch or on the field. And I think there's some truth to that. In fact, I would argue that uh, if any of you have enjoyed sports or actually any kind of organized, uh, if you've been in theater, things like that, you, you are able to learn incredible amounts of stuff from working with groups of people. And actually you're able to learn a lot about life how you view yourself from working with groups of people and, and, and soccer does that. So, uh, some of you maybe don't know this, but uh, I actually played soccer in college uh, when I was Mike Clicker. I gotta, I have to blow on it. Next slide. <laughs> I don't know why that's not working. Um, some of you maybe don't know this, but I played soccer in college. That is not a picture of me, though. <laughs> some of you are like sitting there like, Holy cow! He's a lot older than he like. He's really old. So no, that is not me. Um, that is the goalie Lev Yashin. So uh, in the in the world of soccer. Um, the singular best goalie that almost everyone across the board, in fact, um, if you go into sports, there will be arguments all the time about who's the goat, right? Who's the greatest of all time, right? Basketball, you have all these discussions. If, is, it, is it Jordan? Is it LeBron? Is it Magic? Is it Kareem? Like all these, uh, right, all these things. Um, within the world of soccer, as far as goalkeepers go, there's a singular best goalkeeper that almost the entire world would, would, say, would say was superior, was better than anyone else. Lev Yashin. So uh, he was a goalie in the 50s and 60s, primarily. Uh, he played for, uh, let's see, Moscow Dynamo was the name of their, their team. And stories of Lev are kind of a legendary of how good of a goalie he was. In fact, most would say that he revolutionized uh, modern goalkeeping uh, because of what he did. You want to know what his nickname was? The Black Spider because it looked like he had eight arms and hand. I thought that's like a great nickname. Um, so his, name, his nickname was the Black Spider. He also happened to wear all black and gold, so it kind of fit, fit in that regard too. Um, Lev played lots and lots of matches, but he had 270 shutouts or clean sheets. 270 times that the other team could not score even one goal on him. So arguably the best goalie that our world has ever seen. And on that soccer pitch, on a soccer team, we could probably make the argument that the most pivotal, the most important position on that soccer team is goalie, right? Um, I never played goal. I didn't want to because it seemed like way too much pressure. Um, and because I think goalies are just a little bit weird. Like, they're, no, I'm being serious. Like, I love some goalies, but they're, they're like, something's a little bit off with them, right? Because... Um, They they, they willingly put themselves in front of balls that are coming at at just incredible speeds. Um, They they are either praised in glory for stopping shots or they're they're just kind of dogged on, right, um, for letting balls go by. So it's kind of this boom or bust thing with goalies. Um, I I really honestly think that they're wired a little bit differently to be able to, to play that position. And it's different than anywhere else on the field, but it's incredibly pivotal. So maybe you don't like soccer, but the same is true in hockey, isn't it? Um, you sometimes talk about ice hockey and goalies in hockey and uh, talk about the goaltender stand on, that he was standing on his head that night, right? Basically stopping everything, all the shots on goal. It's the very same thing. It's an incredibly pivotal spot. But it is even broader than just stopping, stopping balls from going in or pucks going in the net, right? Um, the work of a goalie actually kind of, it, it permeates the entire team. Um, so when I, play, when I played soccer at Martin Luther College, uh, this was in the, so it was not the 50s and 60s. It was, how old was I? 1998, 97, 98, somewhere in there, right? Um, at, when we played, we had, there was one year where we had a pretty decent team um, and we were, we were winning more than we lost. We, I can't say that about all of our teams, but we were doing pretty well. And, but primarily, it was because of the goalie that we had. So his name was Garrett. I won't use his last name because maybe he watches this sermon and he doesn't want me calling him out. So. Um, but Garrett uh, was our goalie and, and he was incredible, actually. Um, he and I were friends. We sometimes had kind of a love-hate relationship. He th- this is a little bit of an aside, Garrett thought that I, I played midfield. He thought that I played better if I was angry. And so you know what Garrett would like do to me during the game? Like just intentionally try to get me angry. I'm like, Garrett, that is not helping, <laughs> right? But that was his theory on me, right? But, but Garrett was a great goalie. Uh, he was about six foot four. He had a wingspan that was just enormous. And so you can imagine in the mouth of that goal, Garrett was an imposing presence, right? He was agile, he could move. He was a phenomenal goalie. And so that year we're rolling and we're winning matches, we're winning games, primarily because of Garrett. But at some point during that season, uh, he got injured and we had to have our backup goalie go in. And, and I told you that goalies are wired a little bit differently. Like goalie number two and number three are even wired even weirdly, even worse. So our backup goalie was not Garrett. He, he, did, his be- he did his best, but he just wasn't. Um, And so in the games that we played with that goalie, uh, um, um, we lost every single one of them. I think it was like two or three games in a row, right? Um, He just couldn't stop the same shots that Garrett did. And so after the first game when we lost, when balls went in, we started to clue in. And you know what we started to do, the rest of us on the team? Well, we pulled back. Right? So defenders pulled back and we tried to help more and we started to play tentative and we started to, to play conservative and, and we pulled back more and more and more because, because the balls were going in the goal and we thought we had to retreat on defense more and more and more. You know what happens when you do that? You just get shelled. I mean, you just get shot after shot after shot. So in those three games, I think we played an entire game on our end of the field. That's how defensive we were because we had a goalie that we couldn't trust. I think there's some illustration in that for us this Sunday after Easter as we go into our world. But here's the good news. We don't have a backup goalie. You have Christ, right? And that save was final and it was forever. And that's the good news we have as believers going out into our world we can approach our Christian living not defensive, not, not scared, not fearful, not pulling back, but we're able to go on the offense, which is what we were able to do when we knew Garrett was back there. Because we knew we could take chances, we could stick our necks out, we could strive and we could try and we could push up the field because at the end of the day, we knew someone had our back. It's amazing how it changes the tenor of all you do when you know that you're supported. That's the reality for us as believers. Christ's death and resurrection means Christ has your back. Therefore, we get to go on the offensive. We need not be afraid to share our faith and go into our world and in our communities. So That's what we want to talk about here today because that's exactly what Jesus does. Uh, Those are the words that he gives to his disciples and to us. Um, not to retreat, not to hide in a, in, a, in a stone castle, not to hole up under the ground or bury our heads in the sand, but to go out, share the good news that sins are forgiven. So our theme this morning is going to be let's go, but we want, we want to look at um, our three different things. Uh, we want to talk about um, kind of what was on the table for those disciples just before Jesus' ascension um, and, and he leaves his, his kind of earthly earthly home. And so these are going to be the three points we're going to go through um, kind of loosely. Uh, We want to first talk about what do we need to know. So if you call yourself a Christian, then presumably you're a follower of Christ, then there are some basics that we need to know, right? That's the first one. Second one is as followers of Christ, as disciples of him, we also dearly want to be known, right? And ultimately that leads us to the last one, that we then have a privilege to make known Christ to others. So that's going to be our, kind of our threefold pattern as we go through, okay? Uh, you're welcome to follow along with me if you would like. We are going to begin with our very first verses. We'll read verse 16 and 17. You're going to find it, it'll be on the screen, um, or you can find it in your bulletin. Um, and you're welcome to take notes in your bulletin as well. If you're a doodler, there's a good spot that, that is there for you, uh, for you to look at. So the first thing we want to talk about is... Um, On the basis level, what do we need to know? So, begin with verse sixteen and seventeen. Says then the eleven disciples went to Galilee to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Kind of a fascinating verse, isn't it? At least for me, like the two things that almost seem in in conflict with one another, or at least in tension with one another. You see right at the bottom here that I kind of highlighted. So Jesus comes to his disciples, right? On the mountain in Galilee. He says, I'm going to give you some parting words. And as they see him, so this is after his resurrection, this is before his ascension back into, into heaven, right? So this is the 40 days after resurrection, before ascension. So Jesus appeared to, to all kinds of people, his disciples, both believers, unbelievers alike, during that 40-year period, or 40-day period, rather. At this point, it's his disciples and his followers, right? When they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. Now, it sounds a little bit strange, doesn't it? I think at times, maybe we, maybe we uh, um, not chastise, but maybe we look down on the disciples just a little bit, right? For even like words like this or sentences like this, where we're like, literally, you've seen Jesus dead and alive again, right? Presumably by now, they had already, Jesus had already appeared to them behind locked doors where he had said, uh, uh, feel the, the, the wounds in my side, see the wounds in my hands. So it's not as though the disciples didn't see bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ by this point. And yet when they see him here, some worshiped, which I think makes sense, but some doubted. It's kind of fascinating, isn't it? But I think on some level, we can empathize with the disciples because this was happening in real time. Now they knew Scripture, they knew Christ, they knew his ministry and all that he had said to them about what was meant to happen, but this was also happening in real time. So on some level, they're wrapping their minds around what is the reality of what we're looking at here because as they're there on that mountain. Here is Christ bodily alive. And if that is true, it has ramifications for my life, my living, and the world will never look the same again. It simply can't. And so I think on some level we can understand this word doubt. But truth is that combination of worship and doubt has been used in other parts in the Bible. Actually in that upper room when Jesus appeared to them and said, look at me, reach out, touch me, feel me, right? Some of them still doubted. So I don't think this is um, a loss of faith. This is grappling with the implications of what Jesus' physical resurrection was going to mean for them. And I think on that level, we can understand that. We are a week after Easter, we have seen Christ died and rise again. We have worshiped him. We have sang his songs and praised him for all that he has done. But then the question is, what does that actually mean for me? And I'll be honest with you, it's got far-reaching implications. In fact, if Christ died and if he rose again, your life ought never look the same. Because it reaches down to our very soul, doesn't it? It's our existence. It's our purpose for living. It's our hope for eternity. So I think that's what those disciples were wrestling with. And I think it's what we wrestle with at times. Now, maybe not on Easter Sunday, but maybe the Sunday afterwards. Maybe this morning for some of you. I think there are times when we struggle with that, when we know that Christ has died and risen again, and yet in the face of having lost a loved one that we dearly miss, we start to wrestle. In the face of of injustice against us or our kids or people that we love, I think doubts can creep in diagnosis of disease, chronic illness, pain within our family members or within us that will never go away until we are in Jesus' arms. I think all of those things at times, the overwhelming uh, um, being overwhelmed by them can bring bring in doubts. If you're there this morning, if you felt that, You're not alone, because take a look around you. Every person in this sanctuary has been in that spot. And that does not necessarily mean you have lost your faith. It just means you are completely overwhelmed by the moment and cannot see the path forward. I think some of that is here with these disciples as well. But the good news for those disciples and for you and I, Jesus still lives, doesn't he? Even when we struggle, even when we stumble, even when, when we, in our tears and in our sorrow, and even at times when we shake our fist at our God, you know who doesn't change? Our God. You know what doesn't change? Jesus' resurrection from the dead. And so that's what we hold on to. Like a life preserver in the tough times and in the good times, that's what we get to share with other people. And so what did the disciples know? They knew that Jesus lived. What do you know? What is a requirement for you as believers to know? Jesus lives. And if he lives, so will you. Heaven is your home. There's no doubt about that. So on the basis level, if we want Easter to have impact, not just on us, but on the world around us and our community. We've got to know that Jesus lives. The disciples got to see that. We do do as well. So, we need to know. Our next one, though. We also want to be known. Read verse 18. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. If we take the facts of Easter, what we need to know, that's where we begin. But honestly, it's not ultimately where we need to get to, is it? Let me put it this way. You probably have family, friends, loved ones, coworkers, people that you live with that know the facts about who Jesus is. That if you asked them, they would know who Jesus is, what he had done, some of the details about the Bible, right? So there are many who know factually who Jesus is, but would we say that that is the, is the definition of faith? We wouldn't, right? Because there's another aspect to it, isn't it? Not only knowing the facts, but I think on some level it's for us as human beings also desiring to be known, to be known by Christ, not that just that Jesus died and rose again for the sins of the whole world, but that Jesus died and rose again for me. Okay? So those facts become personal, and we call that faith. And really that's where these disciples are at. And it's where Jesus kind of brings them to. He says, remember, all authority has been given to me. I willingly lay down my life on the cross for you. Now, why is that important for us? I think this is why. Because on some level, in almost every aspect of your life, you want to be known, you want to be seen. You want to be heard, right? Think about it. Uh, um, maybe with your kids. The kids, as they're growing, they want their parents to. You just don't get me, right? You just don't understand where I'm coming from, right? You don't. You don't. You don't know what I'm feeling, right? What are, What are they expressing to us? They want to be known. They want to know that you know them, that you're listening, that you're attentive, that you are with them, not just in theory as a parent that is going to give them food and water like you would your animals, right? But your kids are not animals as much as we love animals. They're more precious. They want to be known and they ought to be known, right? And we want to know them as their parents. And sometimes they, they, they seem completely perplexing to us but we strive and we struggle to know them and they want to be known. How about in your workplace? I think you want that, right? Uh, Maybe there are certain jobs that you've had where you're like uh, completely disconnected from it. You you just clocked in, clocked out and you could kind of disconnect. But my guess is if you thought back to that job, there probably wasn't a ton of satisfaction that you gathered from it, right? You're able to pay your bills, you're able to take care of the people that you want, you probably didn't find a lot of satisfaction. So, I think even in the workplace, we want to be known. We want to be a part of a company. We want to use our gifts in a way that we think brings value not only to the business but to the people that we work with around us. And so, on some level, even in our vocations, we want to be known, right? We're individuals. We want to be known. How about in your relationships? You want to be known don't you? Whether it's dating or a husband and wife, you want to be known by that person at the deepest level, in the most intimate of levels. You want to be known. Now, herein lies a little bit of a problem because when you are known to that level, it can also be frightening, can't it? And maybe even as I was talking through some of that, some of you started squirming a little bit, right? Like, at work, I don't want, at work, I don't really, I, I'm okay, let's just talk about the Broncos so I can head out, right? But that, truthfully, isn't what you want for your relationships with your kids, with your spouse, someone you're dating. You, you want to be known and you want to be known a, on a deeper level than maybe just chit-chat in the world. And that's not strange. I think that's common to every single one of us. In your friendships, you want really good friends, really know you. And herein lies the difficult part. They know not only your good stuff, your strengths, your talents, your wittiness, your ability to play soccer. Maybe not. They know not only those things, but what else do they know? They know your past. They know your sins. They know your weaknesses. If they want to hurt you, you know what? They can do it. They want to push your buttons, you know what, you can do it. Husbands and wives, I see it all the time when I counsel. Husbands and wives, you want to hurt one another, you are in a uh, um, strategic position to do it worse than anyone else could. Right? And so there's responsibility there. We want to be known both for the good, but the other side of that is our sin. And that can be scary. Sometimes our reaction to be known is to pull back and say, well, then if if I've been hurt, I don't want to be known at all. Uh, There's a song that's that's one of my favorites by the Oh Hellos. It goes like this. Hello, my old heart, it's been so long since I've given you away and every day I add another stone to the walls I built around you to keep you safe. Hello, my old heart, how have you been? How is it being locked away? Don't you worry in there, you're safe. And it's true, you'll never beat, but you'll never break. You ever feel like that? I think at times we are, right? When family, when friends, when a spouse, when people that we have made ourselves known to hurt us, sin against us, lash out against us. I think this is our temptation. But here's the real blessing. If there was ever anyone that had the right to kind of lock himself away and retreat, it would have been Christ, and yet he didn't. Our first reading today said while we were still sinners, we were reconciled to Christ. While people were actively sinning against Christ as he hung on the cross, he was actively giving his blood and his life for them and for us. And for the world. And you want to know who knows you even better than your spouse? Your God does. He knows our strengths and our weaknesses. He knows our rights and our wrongs and yet he still loves you. You are known to him and knowing that he still gave his life on the cross for your sins. And so when Jesus comes to the disciples and there's this big picture of now you're going to go out into the world I think it's vitally important for them and for us to understand not only are you going into the world but he's come into you, into your heart through the work of the Holy Spirit changing your heart from death to life. You are known and that is not a scary thing. That's a good thing when it's Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Okay? So, we need to know. We need to be known. But then we also need to make known. We continue with verse 19 and following says, therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. So now here we get to it, right? This is Jesus' command to go into the world to share the good news. Now, what's interesting is he doesn't give us a detailed business plan, does he? Right? Christianity spread throughout the known world has changed the hearts of billions of people, has crossed nationalities, has crossed ethnicities, has crossed socioeconomic barriers, on some level has crossed every single barrier that tends to separate humankind from one another. Christianity has crossed. It has changed hearts across the board. And so if you were looking at that afterwards, you'd be like, man, we've got to find out what Jesus' business plan was. Because that thing was like really successful, right? This is it. And it may seem remarkably simple, but within Jesus' command, his commission to us as believers, there's some incredible things that are in there. First is he says, Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. So this good news of being known and making him known is not limited to us, our ethnicity, the people we're comfortable with, the people that vote like us, that look like us, that act like us, but that Christ is intended for every last man, woman, and child on the planet earth. Okay? All nations. No one is excluded. Absolutely no one. No one has an exclusive right to Christ. He is for everyone. That's the first thing, right? Second thing that Jesus talks about, that he wants us to teach. Teach what? About Christ. Remember the beginning of our sermon? (laughs) Make him known. So who Christ was, what he did, the sacrifice he made. Then lastly, what's the tool he gives the Christian church? Not like... uh, um, Not like a traction plan, not like a a really good PowerPoint. He gives us word and sacrament. He gives us the Bible, baptism, and communion. And he says, using this tool, these tools, hearts will be changed, lives will be changed, and the world will never look the same. And do you want to know if it was successful? It was because you're here. It works because you're here. Right? So that's the tool Christ gives us. And it's a command, do you notice? Right? Therefore, go. That word, therefore, is maybe a little light, but um, behold, right? He says, go. He doesn't say, go when you feel like it. He does not say, go when you have the right finances. He doesn't say, go when you get a building. He says, go. Wherever you are, whatever you're doing, go. Right? This is what theologians sometimes call a gospel imperative, which I think is maybe a fancy theologian way of saying Jesus is commanding you to do something, Um, but here's the beautiful thing about a gospel imperative. Christ commands us to do this, but he then gives us the power to do the very thing that he's commanding us to do. And that's that's not too bad, right? Jesus isn't saying go and figure this out, He's not saying go and put in place a business plan. He's not saying go and I, and, and I hope that you're going to do all right. He says go and I'm going to be with you and I'm giving you the tools to accomplish that which I'm commanding you to do. Okay? And then he finishes with this. And this is kind of, uh, this is King David rather, leading us forward. David says this, Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there's any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. See, even before Jesus appeared, David knew who was leading him into his future. It was the God that made the promise to send a Messiah. It was that promised Messiah in Jesus Christ. One last story. Uh, In 1937, uh, a goalie named Sam Bertram uh, played for one of the teams in England. It was kind of a locals match and they started out the match and everything was, was going well. He was doing his duties as a goalkeeper, keeping the, the ball out of the goal. Um, but as you can imagine in England, uh, kind of a really thick fog came in and it actually like settled in the stadium. And so his visibility, a goalie's tool, is visibility of the field, His visibility was he was losing, like, lines of players. So he couldn't see the forwards any longer or the other end of the field. Then he couldn't see his midfielders. Then he couldn't see his fullbacks, which were supposed to be right there in front of them. And at some point during the game, Sam Bertram couldn't see any more than probably five to eight feet in front of him. And so he stood there in that goal just waiting to see what was going to pop out in front of him, possibly eight feet in front of his face. I told you goalies are wired weird, right? Because he stayed. (laughs) He stayed. He stayed, he was willingly like just gonna get blasted, right? Um, Waiting for the ball, waiting for players. He waited and waited and waited, and nothing seemed to happen. And he's like, man, we must be killing him because the the gameplay is all down on the other end of the field. And then all of a sudden he saw something come out of the fog and was a police officer. And Sam looked at him, he's like, what are you doing on the field? And the police officer looked at him and said, what are you doing on the field? The game had been called 15 minutes earlier. No one told him, right? No one told their goalie. So he was sitting out there protecting, guarding that goal for a full 15 minutes after the game was already done. His buddies kind of had a laugh about him afterwards, right? But I think that's the encouragement we have of Christ, is that he doesn't let down his guard, even in our darkest gloomiest moments. He does not walk away. He is not absent from the scene. He stays on the pitch and he walks with us. That's the assurance he gives to his disciples and to you and I here this morning. Jesus says, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. He will walk with you through the darkness and the fog of this life and ultimately into eternity. That's the good news we get to share, brothers and sisters. That's the good news you know and we get to make known. Amen.